we're currently in the middle of our John Cougar Mellencamp phase. And for those of you who don't know what that means, John Cougar Mellencamp, John Mellencamp, when he started his career, he started under the stage name John Cougar, and he released six albums under that name. And then he decided he wanted to start using his real name, John Mellencamp. But he'd built this big audience with six albums. He didn't just want to lose the whole audience by switching from the name John Cougar to John Mellencamp. So from the years of 1983 to 1989, he recorded four albums under the name John Cougar Mellencamp. So he went from John Cougar to John Cougar Mellencamp, and then he could finally be just John Mellencamp. So why am I talking about that? Because as you know, I've combined both of the podcasts here. We are currently in the phase known as Random Badassery slash Creative Minds. And then eventually the Creative Minds name is just going to drift apart. Nothing's going to change here except you will get the show that you had before with me talking to guests. And every week, in addition, you're going to get episodes with me and Lamb. For those of you who heard this last week, I'm sorry. I just need to make sure that all of you know this. I don't want you guys to think that you're losing anything here. So this week's episode, this episode right now, the one I'm about to start that I'm delaying terribly, making you anticipate terribly, is an episode with Lamb and I. And then later this week, I'll release an episode with me and a friend. So stick around and subscribe. new mic new voice and oh by the way um this is the first time we're in the big boy pond this is the what? first time the two uh two shows oh, same show now yeah. yep yep yeah so uh yeah how does that make you feel <laughs> there's considerably more people listening now than we're listening before does that make you feel uh nervous at all um how do I how do I put this? No, not in the way that I would think. I'm not nervous. Um, I'm actually excited at the prospect of being able to um, help more people because I feel like in in the long run, whether it's the other show or this show, um, it's all about trying to bring positive or trying trying to help people through things. And it's not always positive. Obviously, sometimes we go through some pretty dark stuff as well. Um, but there's definitely more of a true sense of altruism, and it's not just about us. You know what I mean? Um, and, and given who I am and what my typical priorities are as a person, I feel very strongly that that will motivate me to do even better in the show. And just to, cl- to clarify for everybody listening, when he says this show and the other show, he's talking about the way things were before. Everything is this show now. Everything is here now. Um, if you're listening to this on the old on the, on the Random Badassery archive, come over to the new Random Badassery feed. And if you are listening to this as a Creative Minds listener and going, what the hell is this? (laughs) You've already had one episode of this. We've combined both shows. just makes more sense to me because uh, I don't always get to sit down and talk to people in the interview format every week. So you could either sit and wait for episodes or Lamb and I are always making episodes every week. So I could just put them together and then it's magic. 
And that is what we call coming full circle. Yes. And for people who don't know, Creative Minds was originally Random Badassery. And then Lamb didn't have time to do the show anymore. So I went on solo and I felt I needed to change the name because it didn't fit anymore. And now it fits again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the difficult... See, one of the things that's difficult... I don't want to talk about this too long and bore the shit out of everyone. But um, one of the things that's difficult about doing podcasting, unless you're you know, your radio personality or a comedian, you know, someone who's used to doing this stuff already, you've already learned all your lessons. If you're not one of those people, you have to learn these things as you go along. Like, I'm going to do this, and then this seems like the best choice. And it might be the best choice at the time, but a year later, it's no longer the best choice. That's how things work. Especially, you know, like we're not sponsored by anyone. So there's no one steering the ship. So I have to keep making decisions that seem like the best choice. And for me, I think this is the best choice for all of you to get the best content and not have to go to two different places to get it. And it just, it makes more sense for me and for you guys. So why the hell wouldn't I do it? I will say though, um, Lamb, going to feeling different, I do um, our goofiness, you know, the, the weird like things that we would do. I'd never thought about it when there was less people listening. But now that there's more people listening... I have thought about it twice where I'm like, oh, well, the first episode of you and I talking started with a conversation about flatulence. Hmm, was that a good choice? Yeah, honestly, I, I think because of where I am emotionally, I just don't give a shit. I don't really give a shit either, but there's part of me that wonders. <laughs> and and I think that I that kind of... I, I think we'll get to the point where we don't think about it anymore. Um, and I don't think that we'll be far along. Like it might be three or four minutes into each episode where we just disregard that feeling. Um, I think we've been doing this so long um, and we've been, we've done it in so many different ways that the concept of either, you know, modifying our speech patterns or censoring ourselves has just completely gone out the window. At least I know that's how I feel. I just don't care. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. This is, if you guys are listening to this for the first time, this is kind of more of like a radio show. We've said this before in other episodes. So if you're having to hear this again, sorry. But we're just, you know, sometimes we make stupid jokes. Sometimes, you know, we talk about stupid things, but not for the whole episode. We we seem to oscillate between these like highbrow and lowbrow things. And that's just us as people. So either you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. You can skip these episodes and only listen to the interview episodes, whatever. We're going to do this this way. And having the two shows combined, speaking of doing it for a long time, this is technically with the two of them combined, episode 102. Jeez. So we've broken 100. That's why I bought the microphone. Because I told myself if I ever broke 100 episodes, I'd get the number one microphone. Well, I feel like from that perspective too, like there, there's, a polished, there's a polished unpolishedness to us now that I think is, just comes from experience and time. I mean, given the number of different iterations of shows that you've done and the many different types of things that you've done um, in order to try to communicate um, with people just in general, there's, there's, there's a sense of completeness now to the way our conversations are that I think is really interesting. Um, you know, especially in, in random badassery where we're just as comfortable talking about, um, farts as we are society. You know what I mean? Right. Well, what's interesting to me, because, um, there's, I don't know, maybe I want to say about 10, maybe more episodes of, you and I talking, I guess we can't call it random badassery anymore because everything's random badassery. But of our conversations where in the years I've lost the show notes 
So I've been going through and slowly listening to those um, and <laughs> redoing the show notes. And what's fascinating to me is how many of the topics we talk to, do we talk about now, came up way back then, and I didn't remember us talking about them. Um, and I can see the the you know that polish you're talking about. I could see moments of that where it's like, oh, that's oh, we did that really well there. That's the first time we did that well. And it's it's kind of fun to listen to. It's also cringeworthy because you should always cringe a little bit about what you did in the past, I think. Um, well, I, I feel very strongly that we're, at least on some level, we're just constantly chiseling away at something. Um, you know, like some of the topics we talk about, for example, it's not it's not one conversation. You know, over the period of time in which we've doing this, we've been doing this. I know that my opinions have changed on on a number of things, um, as well as my thought process concerning those things. So I don't I, I don't think that it's unusual that we loop back around to many of these things because they're at least for some of the topics I'm thinking of, they're they're almost omnipresent. Um, in our lives, you know, for example, the the idea of defining what a creative life is supposed to look like, or understanding how and why um, society shapes people um, into fear based creatures that make decisions slowly or impossibly at times. You know, those things are constantly going to come up for us because I think they're things that we deal with as people as well. And as we deal with them and we fight our way through them, um, we make revelations. Um, or, or we have revelations, and we 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 find resources that that change our our mode of thinking towards a particular thing. And over time, it just becomes natural to to share that with each other because that's just what we do, right? And that, with that said, I think we need to jump right into coddling of the American mind. Oh because man! Speaking of of changing the way you think, if you guys are just here for the first time, this is a book I've read. Lamb's getting around to reading it. So this will be round two on this book. And this book was powerful, powerful book. I wish I had time yeah. to reread it before today. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm about a third of the way through. And I will tell you that just in, in the third that I've read, um, here's, here's an interesting thing. So I'm afraid to talk about it. It's a little scary, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, it's, for anybody who hasn't read it, it is a book written by two left leftists. I hate that word, but left-leaning professors about um, things happening in colleges. Um, but the things that are happening, you know, as, as call-out culture and um, safetyism and all of these things, they they tend to be things that also people on the left would eat you alive for acknowledging that these things are happening. Um, so it's, it's a scary book to talk about because of that. Because uh, it's, you're talking about something that is, in these cases, is a healthy reaction in the sense that, uh, yes, we don't want people to um, feel unsafe and we don't want people to feel um, marginalized. But then there's also a line where it blows so out of proportion that it actually is destroying the tenets of the establishments um, and is no longer even achieving uh, an actual sense of safety for people. It's setting up... Um, a whole new paradigm. It's well, I think the, difficult the, to talk the, about. The, the clarity for me, uh, you know, the one thing, the, the through line, at least from from my mind, because you know, I work in politics, so I deal with this all the time. Um, the, the the tough part is understanding the difference between safety and challenge or, or unsafe and challenging. Um, 
And in a lot of cases, especially with those two terms in particular, I think the line that separates them blurs massively, almost more than anything I've ever seen, because a lot of it comes down to a, a person's particular comfort level. And I'm not talking about a societally based comfort level that has been beaten into you throughout the course of your life. I'm talking about a human being's actual comfort level if you really get down to it. Right. Um, and I know that that sounds strange, but I think that we're offended by a lot of things because we're supposed to be offended by them, not because we actually are offended by them. Right. Uh, and we also have some sense of entitlement that we're not allowed to be offended anymore. Yeah, 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 sure. You think uh, that's true? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not, you know, we because this has to do with colleges, we end up talking about the left more, but I see it on the right as well, is that people don't want to be offended. But what sure. they really don't want to be is they don't want to be challenged. Yeah. You know, don't, don't challenge what I believe. Um, but the, the, why, why it's so important that this comes up with colleges is because the purpose of a college is to challenge what you believe so that you can learn something. If you can outlearn things that are wrong and you can strengthen the things that are right. But the only way that happens through, through challenge. And if you start taking challenge at other institutions, the institutions become useless. Sure. And I think a lot of, of what is defined, I mean, one of the, the edicts of the book um, or, or one of the, the main tenets is, is, is concerning call-out culture and how we so vehemently discourage challenge that at, at, at some point or another, we're going to be unable to problem solve both um, in our regular lives as well as on a, on, on a societal level because everybody has such a powerful need to maintain that bubble of, of pure safety and 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 unchallengedness if that's a boy i mean no if that's a proper way to say that <laughs> um but you know i i definitely see that quite a bit um in my political life like i mean even the politicians i work with there's a very strong sense of what i can and cannot say and i feel like that line gets pushed further and further every day um especially as you get higher and higher in the political spectrum you know because now i'm starting to work with um, you know, some some local assembly members, a few a few Senate people and stuff like that. And so from that perspective, like everything that you say has to be so carefully catered to the environment in which you're saying it, that the 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 the, the genuine there's a lack of, of 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 sincerity in politics that I don't think is necessarily defined by the politicians, but defined by the environments in which they have to communicate. Is it no wonder that people don't trust politicians though? Absolutely, but but it's only because they lie all the time. Yeah, but but it's only because they can't trust themselves. You know, that's a two way. It's not even that. It's that they they can't trust that they can make something and people aren't going to blow it out of proportions and then just ruin their whole career for one thing. Yeah, exactly. And so there's there's definitely like I mean I I work with one particular assembly member, um, and I've been around him enough to know how precise he has to be uh, when it comes to how he communicates his views on particular topics, some of which you would think are, are no-brainers. But you know, when it comes to being a politician, there's no such thing as a no-brainer. And I used to have this, this very defined sense of you know, um, politicians shouldn't be in politics if they need the office. Um, they should only be there if they, they, they feel like they can, they can do some good for the world. And that view is starting to slowly change. Um, and what I mean by that is I now feel like, especially for some of them, um, they feel like they can make such a big difference in society. And so because of that, their, their concept of, of, of being reelected, for example, isn't necessarily about their own egos, even though they do very much want to get reelected. Um, it's about 
being able to continue doing the work that they do. Um, and more often than not, actually, I'm finding that to be the case. Like my working in politics has definitely dramatically changed my perception of what a politician has to go through in order to survive in the political spectrum these days. Have you got to the section where they talk about parenting? Is that in the first third? Yes. Um, just just briefly, though. I think I'm two sections into that. Okay. Well, well, we'll hold off on that because that's a big, big topic. I mean, this the book overall is just, it's overwhelming in the scope. And then uh, by the time you get to the end, what I what I really appreciate about it, what they did is it, it, you get to a point where it's so overwhelming, it feels like it's, you know, it's hopeless. You know, so how are we going to fix this? And then they make some suggestions. You know, their suggestions might not work, but at least they leave the book with, you know, something that you can hold on to because it sure. does feel not like just a presenting a, <laughs> a dramatic doom and gloom situation in which society is falling apart at the seams. Yeah, it's 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 pretty. If you read all of the books that I've read for you know the the books that I've been recommending for like the last uh, six or eight weeks or whatever. It's a pretty doom and gloom picture overall. <laughs> That's why I've had yeah, to gear off other things because holy Christ, holy Christ. And and I mean, don't get me wrong. I work in politics, so I get to see the real versions of that um, every day too. Like for example, there's there's one particular politician that I work with where um, there was a there was a particular housing policy that um, was about rent control. And this old couple came in and screamed at him and basically called him the Osama bin Laden of, of the housing world. Wow. Um, to which that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it's just a hurtful statement to say. Right. Um, but I mean, that's, that's what they have to deal with. Can you imagine the, the skin you have to have, the thickness of that skin in order to work in public service? That's just daunting to me. Like every, every single day I see them get crushed um, and just stand right up again, you know? So, I mean, I have, I have a different appreciation now, I think, for politicians because I understand on a very practical level what they have to deal with pretty much daily. Um, and in some cases, you know, as, as I'm starting to work with higher and higher level politicians, basically the, the level of that level or the level of that criticism and the, the profoundness of the arguments in either direction just become exponentially larger. And I, I don't understand... I I don't know how you choose that job, honestly. Yeah. Well, at this point, I don't know how you choose to be a college professor either. Oh, yeah. Jeez. You basically live under a microscope 24 hours a day. Which I did hear, I don't know if it was Jonathan Haidt himself or if it was um, another college professor referencing this book. But they did say that the, for the most part, most colleges are not having the same problem as the ones here, or at least not in the degree that he talks about here. It's made, it's mainly just um, a small minority, but it's just huge in those places. Like sure. I can't remember the name of the school in Oregon that fired um, Brett Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember that. Apparently it's, it's just, it's terrifying there to be a teacher because the, everything they say is just scrutinized to every, to the nth degree. Ugh, too much. Well, I, you know, when you start looking at stuff like this, and this is very weird to say, but you can understand, um, you can understand the appeal of Trump. Yeah, where it's like, oh, he doesn't give a fuck, and he gets away with whatever the hell he wants to say, and then I, you know, people who support him, it's it, it has to feel good. Be like, 
somebody's just talking, you know, they don't even have to agree with what he's saying. But if they support him, they're like, oh, it's just, it's good to hear somebody talking in a way that's not, you know, they don't give a damn because everybody else is so guarded and so afraid. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily good to the, to the degree with which he does it. I, obviously, I don't agree with pretty much most of the things that come out of the man's mouth. I think he's a moron. But um, I, I do think that it's probably really exciting for people to just hear somebody um, talking, regardless of what he's saying, just talking and not giving a damn in the public light because it's so rare. It's so rare. Everybody has, you know, these um, agents and they have these people that are sitting and writing statements for them. And this is what we want you to say. And it's just, it's, it's really fucking boring. It really is because we can't get anywhere because we're all just saying things that we want, think other people want us to say. And nobody's actually getting down to conversation. And you know, what's worse is I actually, so I'm, I'm left leaning, you know, I'm pretty much a liberal and I will say that it's far worse on the left than it is on the right. Well, yeah, because inherently that's, that's the focus of the left, right? The left is focused on, um, Oh, we don't want to. We we want to make sure everybody's feelings are taken care of. And I'm, I'm not making fun of anyone. It's just words I'm saying. Or you know, like their focus is on n- nurturing people. Um, whereas more on the right is more about pull yourself up by the bootstraps and be tough. Um, so yeah. So the left is worried about what other people think. So they're always continually scrutinizing what people say. Sure. Because because uh, the left. Um, I'm not going to say whether these things are true. I'm just going to say what people purport. The left purports to support the minority. Um, so you have to protect the minority if that's what you purport, right? Well, then offensive statements and all of these things are going to be uh, things against your ideology. So you have to tear those people apart. That's what people think. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think that sometimes you can say stupid shit and then find your way and stumble this show is a perfect example we say stupid shit all the fucking time yeah pretty much every third sentence yeah (laughs) but we stumble ourselves into things that we wouldn't have thought of before if we hadn't said the stupid shit if we hadn't said things that were wrong if we hadn't tried and when when we live in that little paste house of uh paste house that's good i don't even know what the hell that is when we live in that Mm -hmm. that little that little white box of this is what's acceptable Nothing happens because it's it's scripts. You know, it's like when you call in for a customer support and they're reading you the script and it takes you fucking 40 minutes to get to your actual problem because they got to go through their script. Sure. You never get anywhere. Whereas um, if somebody just said, what's the problem? And you're like, here's the problem. Shit, that sucks. Let me get somebody on that. Boom. Done. We're at the problem. We're getting there. We need more of that. Yeah. And I mean, and that's universally true too. Like we need more of that in almost every environment. Um, I, I feel like the the next, so so Trump is a dramatic overcorrection to the current or what the, the political climate was when he was running for office, right? Um, the political correctness, the sheer volume of, of people who were polished practice politicians with speechwriters and coaches and publicists who were defined so much by the rhetoric of their parties that it was impossible to understand where they actually stood for something. So you're right. I mean, I agree with you. As much as I loathe Trump with every fiber of my being, I can understand his appeal. Right. Um, 
And so, for, but but the, the the tough part though is that I I feel like it's going to flip in the other direction, and because that's that's it for for as much as we'd like to think otherwise, our country is extraordinarily young. So in a lot of ways, we're going through our, our horrible teenage years right now, where we're just basically selfish assholes, um, and we have these these emotional tirades one direction or the other. So I think in in the long run, it will correct itself, um, and there will be a median if we survive that long. Um, but I think the next shift, you know, like I, I see that from from what I see in the in left politics now, is that we're going to go completely in the opposite direction. Oh yeah, and going back to the book, that's one of the problems with what what this behavior does is because we we keep going from extreme to extreme. You know, like sure. we never we never get anywhere because we are, like the title says, we're coddling. You know, it's like, oh well. That word might offend you. Okay, yes, words do offend. They do. We know that. <laughs> Anybody that's the, that doesn't like cursing that's listened to this show so far has been offended at least seven or eight times. Um, that's just the way things are. But that's that's reality. And we're not preparing people for the reality of the world. So what's happening is these, these people, are, these human beings are going off to college, um, believing that the world can be this manicured um, garden you know, where they're perfectly protected from anything that could offend them or challenge them. And then they go to college and then the college, it continues there. Instead of uh, changing that, the college perpetuates it and then they're released into the world. And now these are people that are voting and these are people that are running for office. And they believe these things because they've never actually lived in a world where disagreeing with somebody isn't the end of the world. Disagreeing with somebody isn't war where disagreeing with somebody is a place to start. And we've, we've lost that. We're supposed to have discourse as a place to begin, not the place to end. You know, once we disagree, this is over with. No, it's supposed to be, we disagree. Now we have to talk. And we've lost that. You know, the tough, the tough thing too is that, and I, and maybe my experience is unique through this, but like, you know, I, I grew up in an immigrant family, um, where, you know, at one point in our lives, like my entire family, including aunts and uncles and everybody lived in the same house. And we had to, we had to basically fight our way through all of our problems pretty much constantly, right? I go from that to um, a, a high school experience in which I was doing speech and debate and I was, you know, on stage quite a bit and having to deal with those challenges. And then, you know, once I go into college, I'm, I'm focusing on things like political science and journalism um, and psychology. So I've built a life craving challenge and i think that the experience for a lot of people is nothing close to that which is probably the reason why in the both political spectrum spectrum as well as the social the, the social strata that i exist in this this idea of safety is so asinine to me um because i i thrive on challenge you know i, I thrive on having someone question my beliefs and 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 convince me otherwise because even if they don't change my mind they have a perspective that i have not seen you know right well i'm trying to remember the jaron lanier quote from um 10 arguments to delete your social media it was something along the lines of i don't want a world that's completely safe i want a world that challenges me and obviously it was far more eloquent but i don't, I don't have the time to just sit here and search for it um but I, Anyway, we'll finish this conversation when you get deeper in the book. Let's let's jump well, on to something else. Well, a, a part of that too, before we exit out of this 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 you know dive, is I think social media would be far more useful if people were honest on social media. 
Sure, sure. Um, I don't really have anything to say about that because I'll tell you one thing that's great about deleting the social media. <laughs> I, I don't give a shit about it as a topic anymore. <laughs> it interests me about as much as a butterfly's butthole. I could care less. That's probably more interesting to you because you don't know what a butter you don't even know if butterflies have buttholes. Yeah, that's, I was thinking about that when I said that, but they do leave little turds, so they have to have oh, little sure. stinkers. Okay, mm. so little stinkers, interesting. I feel mm-hmm. like you just uh, found the episode title. Everybody, jump over to DuckDuckGo and search those two words, butterflies butthole, and see what comes up. I'm not going to do it right now. Okay, <laughs> so um, I have a bunch of a bunch of stuff, but they're all little small things because. Um, I just happen to have a bunch of little small things. So it should be interesting. Um, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to shake things up a little bit. You know what would be a good one to jump into right now? Um, talking about blandness. Um, we've talked over the years, you and I personally and on the show have talked about um, Medium, the the website Medium and how great it was and all this stuff. It fucking sucks now. <laughs> oh, it's man. So really? now. It's 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 like the same shit over and over again everybody's writing the same damn articles over and over again no depth and just uh, same productivity tips same business tips the same shit over and over again you can go in there and search and look around and you're not going to find anything interesting anymore it's really you know what it reminds me of youtube Mm. you know youtube for a while it was really fascinating you go on you and i had and i was thinking about this because uh it was like episode three or something. We had talked about YouTube and how great YouTube was. And we thought it was the, the future of television. It's so boring now because it's like literally the same people, the same thing with Medium, same people sharing the same information, except it's like, I, I, I know this information that this other person did, but this is my video saying the same thing. So it's like, it's like same people just with different, or different people with the same script. They're all just reading the sure. same thing, giving the same tips. I wonder why that is. Why did what makes these communities just all the all the creativity gets sucked out of them? Well, I I, I go back to your algorithm issue. Um, I think too many I think too many places are so concerned with eyeballs that they don't care about difference. Mm. That's that's kind of what my guess was. My guess was that the, you go into like Medium. We'll use for the example here. You go into Medium. And there's all these awesome articles and you're reading this stuff and you're going, wow, this guy's doing really well. This lady is really kicking ass. And then they go, I want to do that. So what are they doing? So then they imitate them. And then another person comes along and then they see, instead of seeing the first two people, they see the third guy. And so she, she imitates the third guy. And then somebody comes in and then sees the fourth lady. And then they imitate the fourth lady. And then this, it's like Xerox of Xerox of Xerox of Xerox. And then you just end up with this white piece of paper with little black blobs on it that you can't even fucking read anymore. And, and so the topic we originally talked about with um, the Cotillion of the American Mind is fantastically represented in what we're talking about now. How so? It, 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 it's creating, you, you want to go with so much with what's safe that you ignore your responsibility as a writer or a journalist to challenge. Right. You know, it's, I've discovered, speaking of that, a really interesting podcast. It's called um, You're Wrong About. And it's mm. two journalists. And essentially, they take these stories that we all think that we know, like the Exxon Valdez or um, Anita Hill or uh, Crack Babies, 
or Satanic Panic, um, Roe v. Wade, and they actually do research into it, and then they come in and they go, "Okay, here's what we—they're younger than us, so it's it's there's a lot of assumptions even more for them because things were just passed on to them." Sure. Um, but they come in and they go, "Here's here's the thing about here's the truth about this." I'm um, like, for example, one that I found fascinating with the Anita Hill thing. Even watching a documentary about her, I didn't know this, and that's she never came forward. Really? She, she did not come forward. She was interviewed by the FBI and made to testify. She never came forward. She didn't want to testify. Interesting. She wanted nothing to do with it. She wanted to continue in Kentucky, I think it is, and just keep teaching law. She wanted nothing to do with it. So it's it's really fascinating because I, I don't always uh, agree with the assumptions that they make on everything, which is great because they challenge me, but they always bring in something where it's even if you're on the right or you're on the left, if you listen to the episode, you're going to go, I did not know that. I thought it was this. Fascinating. And that's interesting because that means that our current concept of um, victims of sexual assault coming forward colored how we saw our own history. Of course, yeah. The Anita Hill story is just, I think... I've 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 read a lot about her and I watched the the documentary called Anita at least two or three times. She's just a, a fantastic human being. Yeah, she's kind of a badass. And she's just a sweet, quiet person. Like she's not like this, you know, that that's the thing that they got wrong about it. You know, like that we've all thought um that she came forward and you know, if you're on the left, she was a hero. And if you're on the right, it was like she was a bitch trying to throw a, a wrench in the gears of, of uh this um appointment. Neither are true. She got she got forced into it, and she she's a hero to me because of how she had to deal with um, being forced into this thing and being thought of all these things and living through it and just continuing to do what she loved, which was teach the law. Um, but it's 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 fascinating. Anyways, I that, I just thought that was a great example of journalism done right. Uh, can you imagine how crippling it is? to have the specter of that follow you around, especially if you didn't ask for it. Oh yeah. I can't even imagine. It'd be like being elected president with ever, without ever putting your name on the ballot. You're like, Oh no, thanks. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold your horses there. That's not what I signed up for. I'm not ready of four years of people shitting on me, no matter what I do. And <laughs> I cannot imagine. I mean, I think about, and, and don't get me wrong. This is not to say that I have any real empathy for Trump at all, but I get it. Um, from the, like, I mean, you, you, you look at all of these pictures of presidents, um, before their, their terms begin and then after, and they look like they age so much. Except for him. He's like, yeah, uh, except for him, he looks exactly the same. He looks the same. I mean, he was already old, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, if you look, if you, if you look at like George W. Bush, or if you look at uh, even Barack Obama, I mean, the amount of gray hairs that Barack has by the end of the presidency and how many more wrinkles he has is like shocking. Oh, yeah. But also, to be fair, they're in their 40s, usually the 40s or the 50s, and it's eight years. So they move closer to being a senior. So some of it's not all stress. Some of it's just normal, natural aging of eight years. Sure, that's true. That's a good point. That's one thing nobody ever talks about. Like, I look older than I did eight years ago, and I wasn't president. Yeah, true. <laughs> I look a lot older than I did eight years ago. I have yeah. no fear then. I, I don't know. I think you. I think you look mostly the same. You know, my beard is almost one hundred percent white now, right? Yeah, that's old. 
Okay. Uh, believe me, uh, believe me, my hair is thinning, so I, I know. I, I'm, I'm used to, my entire life I had like a luxurious, you know, vast amount of hair and now it's it's dissipating before my eyes and it's horrifying to me. Considering how closely tied, maybe not so much as it was like 20 years ago, but how closely tied men's vanity is to their hair, I'm shocked with all the money that's been thrown at that they still haven't come up with a cure for balding. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it doesn't seem mechanically that difficult. I'm obviously I don't fucking know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> I know about as much as the guy watching TV uh, every Sunday yelling at the quarterback knows about football. <laughs> so you're so you're not a geneticist by nature. Come on, come on, Chad. Yes, I was born. I was a born geneticist. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> you should say that. I'm not going to talk about it now because it's a big bummer topic. We'll go on to it later, but one of the things I want to talk about is CRISPR. So oh. stick around. This will be oh, a, if we had uh, sponsors, this would be a great time to like stick around and then we'd go to a commercial. So let me ask you this weird question, right? Um, not what you wanted to be when you were a kid, because that's a, everybody wants to be like a firefighter or a secret agent or some shit like that. When you were 20 years old, what did you want to be? When I was how old? 20. A novelist. Mm. In the vein of who? Vonnegut? Mm, when I was 20? Uh, probably Kerouac at that point. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, that would have been right after I flunked out of college. Yeah. So that seems about right. Or um, what else was I into then? I was really into, this is not a novelist, but I was really into Jean-Jacques Rousseau at that uh, time see. too. Um, nerd. 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 Well, I mean, I like guys like uh, William Carlos Williams. So, I mean, believe me, I know. We're going full nerd on it. Oh, speaking of philosophy, I did mention, I wasn't didn't plan on talking about this on the show, so we're not going to go into this very long. But you haven't, I take it you haven't seen The Good Place yet? Um, I actually saw the first two seasons of that. Okay. I'm almost done with the second season. I think, the, first of all, they work in philosophy so well into a sitcom I really think that might be one of the most clever shows on television. Well, you can't really say on television. The most clever shows out there right now. It's so well written. Yeah, I actually don't I actually don't disagree with that. And I'm shocked that it's so popular because it's so clever. It it it's like going against the 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 belief that many of us have that things are getting dumber. Like here's something that's actually genuinely clever and people like it. You know why though? It's because it's because of how it's packaged. Like you'd never know that there was that much philosophy wrapped up in that show if you're just watching it from the surface. I don't know. They have like you know like five minute debates about philosophy within the episodes. Yeah, but they're always wrapped around comedy and weird hijinks. That's true. And you know acting, I mean? like I, because I know, are hilarious too. Because I know plenty of people who actually watch that show um, who don't catch any of the philosophical undertones at all. That's so weird. I mean, just considering that, like, one of the key plot points of season one is Immanuel Kant himself. Yeah, actually, yeah, sure. So maybe they're just not actually watching the show. But maybe, you know, like Chad, we're, we're also huge, we're also huge nerds, dude. Well, I know, but and just it's like it's a key plot point that they have to learn philosophy from Chidi. Like, that's that, if you don't know that that's happening, then you don't know what's going on in the show at all. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's how they're trying to get... Actually, let's let's stop. Because there's a whole shitload of spoilers 
yeah, that yeah, show is full of spoil. Almost every episode, you could spoil something. Yeah, exactly. So I, I feel like that's that's a smart move. We should back off of that because there are plenty of people who are going to want to watch the show without us revealing the entire point of the show. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted to watch it because I love Ted Danson and I've the only thing I've ever seen Kristen... Everybody knows who Kristen Bell is. I know who she is. The only thing I've ever seen her in was Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So I was like, I want to see her act. You never um, saw Veronica Mars? No. And really? I tried to stream it and I, it's not available for streaming. So Ooh, You're missing out, buddy. It's like two seasons also, right? Yep. It's pretty short. I think they were trying to bring it back. Um, but you know, I know, you they know how that goes. I mean, that's a, that's a tricky proposition one way or the other. She's married to Dak Shepard. That she is. And they have one of the most entertaining love lives. I mean, they're one of the few people that I actually were follow- was following on Instagram um, for a while that was actually interesting celebrity-wise. Yeah, they're like one of the few um, celebrities that I was like, oh, I would. I think that they would actually be really cool to hang out with. They just seem yeah. like real people. Yeah, they look like a lot of fun. That's true. So, um, let's see. Where shall we jump now? Oh, um, speaking of, since I brought up a podcast, I was going to bring up another podcast. This isn't necessarily a recommendation for this podcast because I've only listened to a fourth of an episode. Excuse me. Um, it's called Grumpy Old Geeks, though. If anybody's heard of... Uh, I, I did not know this when I put on the show, actually. I put on this show just because I was looking in Overcast, which is a podcast app, if you don't know. And this show was always in the top recommendations. And it has like kind of terrible... like po- Like the art for the podcast, you know, the little... <laughs> it's kind of awful and i think it's purposely awful um but i was like what is this show so i put it on and immediately i heard one of the voices i'm like i know that voice and if anybody's heard of jordan harbinger show which is a fairly big show um his engineer or i i don't know what his actual job position is the guy that does the sound for him and helps him read the commercials is the host is the co-host of this show huh um, but it's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's this show in, in sort of to, to say it, um, <laughs> to say it bluntly, it's very similar to this show. It's two guys sitting around talking about whatever that they run across during the week, um, and talk irreverently. But what was fascinating is I just, I put on this show and I'm like, okay, oh yeah, kind of similar format. There's a lot of shows where two men are talking to each other and then like, Five minutes into it, I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about the same shit that we've been talking about. Digital detox and uh, the effects of social media. I was like, holy shit. (laughs) That figures. It's funny when, you know, one week Sam Harris talks about the same thing as as we do. And then the next week I find these guys talking about the same thing we do. Well, it kind of defines us in a sense too. Grumpy old geeks can pretty much apply exactly to us as well. Yeah. 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 I think we're actually probably grumpier than those two are. Yeah. I mean, especially now. Um, I have a pretty grim outlook on life, but that's, I'm sure that will pass. You know, it's funny. I was, I was thinking about this today, right? Like, so I have a lot of training in psych. Um, and, you know, I always hear these stages about depression and grief and, you know, mourning and all that kind of stuff. Never really thought any of them applied to me. Um, it's the same thing as cliches, right? Like you don't really think they apply to you until you go through something in which the cliches become front and center pretty much on a daily basis. Um, and I'm I'm almost annoyed at myself for going through the phases of grief. Um, pretty much textbook. <laughs> Didn't that get um, disproven? What's that? Didn't that get disproven? Yeah, it did. Um, 
and it's been modified since like the DSM five, which is the, the manual for, you know, um, psychological disorders and things, um, with every version of that that comes out, they even talk about the DSM five and cuddling of the American mind actually. Right. Uh, like it, it changes. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's been modified and there's been a lot of research done post, uh, DSM four that, that reveals different things about how and why we deal with grief the way that we do. Um, was so four this, or five the one where they shit the bed? Five, I mean, it was headed there in four, and then in five they just pretty much shit canned. Like basically, they 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 made they gave excuses, not excuses. I hate saying that because the DM, DSM four and DSM five is still a very useful resource, um, but in many ways it goes too far in in allowing for certain things. Everything basically, yeah. I, I, I want to be really like careful about how I talk social about Social media paranoia I, disorder. There's like a disorder for fucking everything you can imagine. Yeah, exactly. So everybody's sick somehow. Um, which fits into the coddling of the American mind, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is the reason why they, I, I assumed the reason why they focused on it in the, the, the coddling of the American mind. Because, I mean, there's nothing that defines that sense of creating a safe space more than... Um, than the than the DSM five in its current version, just because it makes people it, it, it removes any and all accountability from people. Right. <laughs> so cool. you can so so everybody's got a reason to be an asshole is essentially the easiest way to break that down. Yeah, you um, you, you poop your your parents made you poop in a public bathroom when you were four. No wonder you're a serial killer and you eat people's eyeballs. Yeah, it's 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 insanity. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong. Like the, the part of it that really bothers me through all of this is that you know, with my my time in psych and with my psych training, I greatly appreciate the 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 actual work that people can and need to do in order to become the best versions of themselves. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm going through that with the breakup right now, and you know, for both of us, because we still keep in touch, like we still talk. Um, because we're we're fucking adults and we're not rom com um, or or drama uh, people who who catastrophically destroy relationships. Like we we ended things as adults. So we talk through a lot of this stuff, right? And a lot of it is is understanding what defines. How do I put this? Um, within the DSM five, it gives you a lot of reasons um, for being okay that are not that are not your fault. And the the thing that it doesn't state, which is something I think that should be stated in anything psych-related, is that whether it's your fault or not becomes your choice in that your reaction to a given stimuli is, is what determines whether or not you have done well or done badly within that given situation. And that is, and that is entirely ignored. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of, in a way, um, this whole trend is that it's kind of like in Woody Allen films where he always talks about uh, his analyst, his analyst, that he goes to see his analyst once a week and he's been going for 30 years. You know, like there's there's these two ways of dealing with with um, mental issues, we'll say, you know, the mental difficulties. The The purpose of psychology is is supposed to be a temporary thing. You're supposed to work through, you know, like whatever caused your problems. You're supposed to work through them, become stronger, better, and happier. Or this isn't your fault and you're going to just be fucked up forever. So just keep coming to see your analyst. Well, I think, that, well, I think a better word to describe it is not necessarily temporary. Um, because, you know, obviously human beings are constantly changing. So I think the better way to put it is transient. Um, 
And I don't think that it's necessarily bad to have an analyst or psychiatrist or psychologist for, for a long period of time um, because I think that you constantly need to check in with yourself. Um, it's right. something that not enough of us do. As um, long as you're dealing with different shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're the same if you, problem for 30 years, you need a new psychologist. Yeah, if you if you're if you're in a revolving door of shitstorm, then that's a whole different story. You know what yeah, I mean? That guy's but, just making money off you. Yeah, exactly. Then that that's literally someone punching a time clock and and buying a Porsche because of your problems. And that's um, the huge problem people have with the DSM five, is it seems to promote more of that. Here's all these problems that we can continue to treat you on that don't have clear they're they're basically all little tiny fractures of one problem, but they make them into individual ones. You know, yeah, like, which which I actually don't even disagree with. Um, I definitely think I definitely that. I, well, well, hear me out. There's 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 room for nuance there because there's there are obviously different reasons for certain certain parts of disorders becoming what they are. Um, but what we need to do is we need to lump them much more together um, in stages. And I think that that the that current psychology, psychiatry and psychology doesn't doesn't adapt to that well, in the sense that these three things lead you to be bipolar, but these three things are not inherently separate to being bipolar. One of the problems with having like five thousand different things to diagnose somebody is these guys and these guys and women end up spending too much fucking time trying to find the exact you know let's narrow it down to this little thing on the tree when this person just needs help and they should just you know if it's paranoia i don't care what kind of fucking paranoia it is you, your job as a psychiatrist anyways is to deal with people on an individual basis who gives a shit whether it's paranoia from so, so social media paranoia from you know whatever you want to say maybe you have dog paranoia who gives <laughs> a shit it doesn't need to be diagnosed as anything other than it's paranoia and then you well, deal with it on an individual basis, just like we had talked about with the law. You know, you deal with each case as it is. Well, I think that the problem inherently lies in 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 being in giving. I guess the way I think of it is this: you cannot treat core problems with the same level of the same level of importance as the symptoms. You know, like if something is symptomatic of something much larger, then you cannot treat the small problems like the big ones. And I think that's the the where current psychology, um, from the way I understand it, fails me um, as a person who has studied it, is that we are dealing with so much little shit that so much of the big shit gets dis disregarded because there's core reasons for everything to exist. You know, like if, if a person has, um, you know, a fear of commitment, for example, um, and you really, you see it from the perspective, from their life perspective, you, you look at a certain type of person, um, them having commitment problems with, like if they're committed with their friends, but they're not committed with a relationship or vice versa, then there's a bigger core problem there. You know, there's, there's, there's some kind of, of core that, that creates that symptom. And I think that a lot of what current psychology is, is treating too much of the symptoms and too few of the actual problems. Right, exactly. And I think that's one of the criticisms within the psychology community is all of these things that are in there as disorders are just symptoms. They're sure, not actually exactly. disorders in and of themselves. And I think what happened is, well, number one, there's, there's some, let's be honest, there are some people out there trying to do good work. Oh, um, of course. 
and and the, the, that can't be taken out of the picture. But I also do think that there's an addiction quality to this stuff where people just really want a name for what's wrong with them. And they want a unique name so they can go tell other people. And somehow that fed back into this whole system as well. You know, it's like, hey, I, it's, you, know, you know, I just went and you know what I guess I found out uh, I have burrito dysphoria. <laughs> I've never heard of burrito dysphoria. I know, right? It's just for me. Like everybody gets to wear their dysfunction like a fucking badge. And well, I mean, it, it, it goes back to, to what we've talked about on, on many levels, which is, and, and, and I, whether, whether we like it or not, we're just going to reach back into the coddling of the American mind pretty often here, just because we're, we're both, we're both enamored by the ideas within that book. But I think identity politics is a big part of that equation. You know, like we're defining ourselves within, within, a society based on identity politics. And I think the tribe, the tribe of the broken is very much a part of the, the liberal mindset is that someone did you wrong somewhere. And now you're just as broken as the next person. And that's the kinship that you have, you know, it, it basically a, 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 a kinship of, of sadness or brokenness that dis, that dissuades any notion of personal responsibility from the equation. I think even like identity politics is a symptom. I don't even think that that's the source. I think it goes back to, um, shit, what book was it? Uh, Attention Merchants with Tim uh, Tim Wu. Sorry, pulling the stuff from my brain and not from paper. I think it's Tim Wu is the author's name, um, where he talks about the the movement through, especially through the 80s of everything, all these attention people slowly realizing that what they're selling us is our identity. You know, sure. that's why the culmination of all of it is Instagram, because now you become the product yourself. You are selling yourself. Yeah. And I think that they, it, obviously any form, any problem, any issue with identity is going to come from that because we're, yeah, we're, we're trying to sell ourselves and all of this stuff and that we're the products and all of this shit. But in reality, none of us have any idea who we are because we're too busy engaging with all of this ide- ideology, which isn't really ideology. You know, it's just, it's, it's things that we juggle. You know, it's like a little inane toys and games that we play. But in reality, like the, going back to the conversation thing that we were talking about, that's where identity comes from. It's really breaking down ideas and, and being wrong and talking to people you don't agree with. That's how you learn who you are. Sure. And I, and I, I honestly think we'll correct for that. I think humanity is, is in the long run is smart enough to realize where it goes wrong. And even, even though I think that that change may come catastrophically, I think it will come. Like I, I, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people think that society grows gradually. I don't think that that's true at all. I think, I think chaotic, I'm sorry, chaotic, 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 that's a good Uh, word. Chaotic is a good word. I may write a book uh, called Chaotic one day. Um, wouldn't that be weird <laughs> if if one of these things ends up being the one swan song that we have in the writing world that defines us? Um, not swan song. My, swan song's the end. Well, you no, know, that's what I mean. Like it'll be the last thing I write. Um, oh, I'm pretty fucking fatalistic right now. So I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sorry to anybody listening to this. I, I know I shouldn't be apologizing for anything, but I'm pretty bummed out in general at the moment. Um, but you know what the fuck was I talking about? Oh, society and how it's how its gradual changing nature isn't gradual at all. Um, I think that that society is just generally chaotic, and that we almost consistently change in large chunks, most of which are typically defined by moments of extreme turmoil. Well, it's always going to be defined by some form of chaos because we we have no idea what we're doing. 
And there's no yeah, blueprint. Absolutely. Absolutely. History doesn't have a blueprint in the sense that, yes, things in history repeat itself, but where you're going is always unknown. Oh, yeah. So and I'm not, and I'm first not... guest appearance. Did you hear? Wait, what was that? I said Siri made her first guest appearance. Did you hear her? Oh, that's what that was? Yes. <laughs> uh, anyways, what were you saying? Before um, yeah, she rudely I, interrupted I think, you. I think, I think society grows chaotically. And I think that, that any notion that we may have that society takes time to... to I, I think in the long run, it, it isn't chaos. Um, but I think in, in small spurts, you know, things like the civil rights movement and, and women's suffrage and stuff like that, I think all of that is chaotic. Um, there are moments of, of extreme realization followed by intense action and, and, and insurmountable resistance. You know, like I think those things are all just inherently true with how society redefines itself every so often. All right. Well, speaking of society developing, one thing that anybody that's new, we might not know that we've talked about a lot is I hate the way that uh, people talk about ancient aliens that came down and built things because, you know, obviously these people think that the Egyptians were morons. And it just, if you were a primitive society that you were full of morons, that you couldn't possibly build these things and do these things on your own because, you know, you're not a modern human. So therefore it's this pompous bullshit ideology. Well, I found tiny little tidbit to spit in those people's faces a little bit further. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you have a real you have a real Jones for that. It pisses me off because it's it's just because, you know, like it, just because people lived 300 years ago doesn't mean they were less intelligent. Sure. Same brains essentially. Or 3000 years ago, they're still well, the same humans. Go go 20,000 years ago our brains were pretty much exactly the same as they are now. Exactly. So, one thing I was reading, there's a magazine, by the way, we're going to talk about this right after. We're going to talk about Apple News Plus. Um, but in the magazine Ideas and Discovery, which I think is made by the same people who do the Discovery Channel, um, there's a little thing about the Great Wall of China, and they're talking about the mortar that's in the Great Wall of China. And the mortar is so strong that it's been able to resist earthquakes for all, you know, for these 2000 years and for 2000 years it's been so good the mortar that it's prevented weeds from growing between the bricks themselves. Huh. And check it out. Guess what the mortar is made out of? What? Water, lime, and rice. <laughs> That's it. We couldn't build mortar that good right now, probably. And the ancient Chinese figured out if they, it, the water is not a key component, but if you mix lime and rice together, the amyleptin in the rice binds with the lime and just becomes this super strong mortar. Interesting. So there's another point for the ancient people. Good job, China. Good job, China. Um, Apple News Plus. I talked about it last week. You tried it. What do you think about it? Um, it is quickly becoming one of those those tools that I never really quite understood how I lived without it. The magazine thing is just so fucking rad. Well, and the and the cure the curation algorithm that that comes along with it after you've read a few of the the articles and it's just unbelievable. Like I'm I'm not sure how it works actually. Yeah, it's incredible, and. 
I imagine if it continue if it, it gets successful, you're gonna see more and more magazines jumping on. So then that ten dollars a month is gonna get you even more. I mean, it's so much right now that even I, I can't even keep up with the amount of magazines that I want to read in there. I'm reading sure. like an hour a day in magazines. Yeah, when's the last time you could say that? But that's that's um something I forgot to mention in the medium thing. Um so medium sucks right now, but what they were trying to be is what magazines already are. You know, this 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 depth and th- this writing that's, you know, it's not as deep as a book because somebody's not putting that much in there, but that's what magazines are. And we've forgotten how incredible magazines actually are. And we really need to like support magazines. So whether it's getting Apple News Plus or actually going and buying physical magazines, that's where the real journalism is happening. You know, I... So I have this experience. I don't know how unique it is, but I used to go to Barnes and Noble and just spend hours reading magazines. Oh yeah, Barnes and Noble is one of the few places, at least in the Bay Area, where there's still a huge magazine rack. They used to have one at um, Fry's Electronics. Now they have like forty magazines. They got rid of like ninety yeah. percent of them. Yeah, those are horrible. Plus, not only that, but most of those magazines are magazines I didn't want to read anyway. Um, but like I, I, I used to like you know hunt through the design section because I used to be huge into graphic design. So I'd read like Emma Gray and like they'd have super obscure magazines too. Um, right. Things like 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 Emma Gray. Emma Gray was super weird. Lots um, of obscure art magazines. Yeah, absolutely. Photography magazines, just stuff that you just have no. I don't even understand how these people are publishing these things. To be honest with you, because if I mean it's not. I'm not claiming that I'm the most well-versed in these things or I, I know um, all the great photographers that are out there or anything like that. But I don't know how in, 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 the, in a day and age in which print media is what it is and how expensive it is to produce a publication, how a lot of these publications are staying in business, some of which have been around a really long time. <laughs> right. It's just, I think they just have a loyal, um, I almost said listenership. <laughs> they have loyal readers um, that maybe... Some of them, you know, are loaded and maybe put some money into it. I don't know. Or people just... seems like for years, magazines were getting bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold. I don't know. So yeah, along it, with the magazine. And, the, and actually, I assume, I assume it's like the rest of the world where like there, there's a lot of individual magazines, but quite a few of them are consolidated into much larger publishing houses. Right. Oh, you know what we forgot to do? Um, actually, you know what? It's kind of kind of makes sense to do this in the middle of the show instead of the beginning. We should really get down to the meat of things at the beginning from now on. Um, let's do our follow-ups now in the middle. Oh, man. Yours okay, is a yeah, big one fun. that I want to know. Did you go on a date? Yes. Kind you of. Did. Kind of. Wait, I wait, did. wait, wait. No backpedaling. Yes or no? Yes, I did. Okay. Now, why did you backpedal? Um, because it was a person, it wasn't a, a, a fresh one in the sense that it wasn't a person that I'd never known before. Is I, I kind of feel like that's cheating a little bit going back into the the the, 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 the Rolodex, for lack of a better way of saying it, and kind of going on a date with a person that I, I've always wanted to but never could. Well, you, know you didn't I mean? say go on a date with a stranger. So it's yeah, that's true. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't make those rules inherently, but yeah, I did, and it was super weird. I bet. Um, I mean, this person, I've known this person a long time. So it wasn't, I mean, she kind of knew what I was going through. Um, she knows me well enough to, to to know how hurt I was. And I think that's a very unique experience when it comes to going on a date with somebody. Um, you know, usually that's the reason why I said it doesn't really, in my mind, it doesn't count 100%. 
um, because it's not, it's not, it's not objective. Um, there was definitely a sense of history that made that process both easier and more difficult. Um, easier in the sense that we got a lot of the idle bullshit out of the way just right off the bat. Um, but, but more difficult in the sense that that person understands where I am. Mm. Yeah, and I, I could, and I could, I couldn't fake it. You know what I mean? And I think that's 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 something that is a great lesson for me to learn um, through the transition out of this relationship that I'm currently in. Is that I lived a world? I, I, yeah, maybe it's because I was in politics or whatever other things that I'm doing. But I had pretty well defined facades and defense mechanisms, and I didn't realize that most of them were what they were until I had to break them down. <laughs> Right. And and that is a by the way, if you ever have to do that, that is an absolutely crippling process. Um I've never in my life really been heartbroken before until now. And so this is this has been a situation in which I don't even have the energy to maintain the facades. And I think that um that's very healthy to do at some point in your life. And I if there's anything that this the end of this relationship has taught me, it's that people value me much more in my pure form than they do in my practiced form. Right. That kind of goes back to our politics conversation too. Absolutely. I can't wait for a politician to be real and unapologetic and for people to get behind that politician. Mm, technically we have that right now. Yeah, it, but but it we also like has him. to be. It also well, no, it has to be an altruistic. It, it can't be. It can't be a selfish, narcissistic moron, um, because I I feel like it, like for for example, I think Barack was a very thoughtful human being, um, but I definitely felt like he was he was too polished at times, and I think a lot of that was because he was constantly told by people around him that he needed to be a certain way to appeal to his base, and I feel like Trump to a certain extent is like that too. Um, I genuinely believe that he, he does not really believe more than 30% of what he actually says. Um, and so from that perspective, I think that, that I, I'm not even sure if you could be a politician in this day and age, if you were sincere, I don't know if that's possible. Yeah. Well, hopefully that will change. Um, as far as my challenge, I did not do it. Um, really? I was too busy. Um, you know, people for everybody out there that combining these shows seemed like something that happened really quick for you guys. It took me close to 14 hours, um, to move all of the episodes, um, together because well, tell, tell people what your challenge was first. Oh yeah. My challenge was to take, so, uh, we talked about these identity statements that we say about ourselves all the time, you know, like, uh, I am lazy. Or I am not a morning person, or I'm a good person, or things you know that we say that we don't even realize we're saying. So I had paid attention to those for a week. And I was going to take three of those that were the most positive versions of myself, and I was going to use them as daily affirmations and get a little woo with it and just see what happened. If I said three nice things about myself purposely every day, if I would notice a change, I did. I didn't. I was just slammed. Um, sure. And I mean, the, the a lot of it was, you know, like this this feed, um, which was the Creative Minds feed, had only like 30-something episodes, which means that 70 were in the other feed. And there's no mass in border, and there's no way to say, move this over there. I literally had to upload each file individually, put all the show notes in, 
put the correct date, keep it private so that it wouldn't dump it in everybody's RSS feed so they wouldn't get 70 episodes in one day, which I think for some people it might have done anyways, even though it wasn't supposed to. <laughs> um, so yeah, it took me uh, eight hours the first day and then like seven hours the next day. Solid work. So I just, Jeez. I was just fried after that, um, which is one of the topics that I have on here when I say that you'll see the word computer fatigue. Um, I noticed for the first time, having done that for two days in front of the screen and then getting up and taking the dog for a walk and just realizing that like physically, I felt like dog shit. I just felt awful. And anybody that tells you that the screens are not affecting us physiologically is full of shit because I can tell you I felt it. I, my heart rate was up. I felt nauseous. Um, I wasn't fully present. My eyes were like fuzzy. It just, just everything that you could that you could feel, not completely like somebody had beaten you to death, but that's you know everything that could feel like a step over and a hangover. A hangover is how I felt, huh. and it is just awful, awful experience to the point where I'm like, "Whoa, I don't ever want to spend that much time in front of a computer ever again." I really, I really feel like someone's got to write that book. Somebody probably has. We just haven't read it. Yeah, that's true. Digital hangover has got to be something that um, defines a lot of the, the... I think the reason why it's so pronounced for guys like you and I is because we grew up in a generation where that wasn't the case. Right. Which which sounds like um, maybe it's, it sounds like not that big of a deal for people who were born with it. But I think it actually makes it worse for people who are born with these as normals. Because they don't notice the negative benefits. They think that, oh, that's just the way you feel. Sure. And because we know the difference, I'm like, oh, I feel like crap. And this doesn't feel like normal human feelings. Well, people who don't know that and they go, oh, yeah, I was just in, in front of the computer, just a little tired, you know, just a little fatigued from being in front of the computer. Like, no, that's not normal. It's doing bad things to you. Yeah. Or, or you know, I, I, I see people on trains and stuff like that, just literally with their heads buried in their phones. Yeah, and what that's um, doing to their spine. Yeah, it, what's doing to their spine? You know, their necks are cranked over. Their eyes, their 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 pupils don't properly dilate. You know, like they, I I can't imagine in the long run that that doesn't cause things like migraines. I mean, that just it just seems like it would. You know, and I'm not a doctor, so I'm not I'm not saying that I know for a fact that it does, but I can't imagine that it doesn't have some kind of adverse effect. I was just hunting right before we started recording, was just looking to see if those computer glasses actually work. Because if they do, I'm going to buy a pair. Well, Eric claims that they do. Um, Eric's got a pair of them. Um, I, I know a couple of other friends, a couple of my other friends are trying them out as well. And almost everyone I know who's gotten them so far has said um, that you don't notice the effect right away. Uh, but definitely over the course of a week, you find that you're you're less tired, like your eyes are less strained. You know, like you, you yeah. like I, I, like even now, I feel as I'm staring at the screen that my eyes are me just too blueing into the world. Like I look up and my eyes take a minute to focus. That can't possibly be normal. <laughs> you know where I don't notice the fatigue as much. Um, obviously, if I put a lot, a lot, a lot of time in, I would. But on the iPad, I don't seem to notice it as much. And maybe it's the True Tone display and and the Retina because I mean the external monitor I use here is it's 1080, but it's not Retina. Uh, so maybe the difference between Retina and 1080, just that little bit of blur, puts enough strain on my eyes. Plus, this thing is so bright, and I can't figure out how to fucking turn it down. Even using the built-in brightness thing, 
doesn't really do anything. Really? No, it takes it down like 5%. It's really oh, annoying. Huh. I'm thinking of getting a matte screen protector just to filter some of the light. Wait, wait. You're talking about your MacBook, right? I'm talking about the external that I use, though, which is a Dell. Oh, monitor. oh, 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 oh. I got you. Yeah, yeah I got yeah. you. Toss it. No, I can't toss it. It's like a $500 monitor. Well, no, I understand. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> like I, I will say now that having a great screen definitely makes a huge difference. Like, I didn't think that really mattered until I got an Apple Cinema display. And holy shit, it makes a huge difference. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, this thing I mean, will fuck just, me up, it, up for a while. Well, the ability to modify the, the, the hue and saturation of the screen on a precise level to match your environment makes a world of difference. I bet. Um, one more follow-up, your favorite one. Did you play Oxen Free? No, I did not. <laughs> okay. Next. Come on, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> Only people who have been, have been around for the other show will understand why that is so funny. God, I feel like it's... it's like 90% of the people listening to this don't understand <laughs> the history of some of these things. <laughs> oh, man. Like, I, I almost have... like I'm almost rebelling against myself now. Like, uh, like I'm, I'm almost going to buy it and just send the link so that it automatically downloads it on your phone. <laughs> oh, geez. No, I actually bought it. It's sitting on my phone. Oh, that's even worse. Yeah, I know. It's literally sitting there. Like, if I took a screenshot... That's and like I falling asleep right now, while you're masturbating. Oh, geez. That's a weird... That's a weird comparison, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not weird. It's uncomfortable. Did <laughs> see that one coming? No pun intended. Oh, but dumb oh, bum man. bum. Jeez, that's, that's horrifying. I'm I'm mad at myself for doing that. I guess I took over your bad joke for the week. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Yeah, so many people who have never heard us are just like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah, we're gonna lose like half the audience, but whatever. This is who. But we're, we're also gonna gain like four really weird people. Yeah, wonderful, weird, fantastic people. Yeah, we love the weirdness. That's why we're here. Um, speaking of which, let's get a little weird. Let's talk about Roswell. Um, we do talk about paranormal, if you guys didn't know that. For people who listen to this show already, and I keep saying, like, if you didn't know this, you didn't know, I'm sorry for being annoying about this. I just know that there are a shitload of people listening to this right now who've never heard this. So that's on my mind. Anyways, okay. so... Roswell. Uh, one of the things, you know this, Lamb, when, I, when I'm watching, I, I'm very skeptical about most things, especially about the paranormal. Um, I want it to be, I'm skeptical because I want to believe. And I, I believe that uh, if something is going to be extraordinary out there, I want it to be bulletproof. I don't want it to, you know, like, oh, well, here's this blurry picture. No. I want to see like radar and I want to see, um, you know, 4k video of it and i want to see like just the best damn evidence that you could ever put in front of me i want to really know that it's real oh man what's that that what's that saying there, there's there's a uh, i forget what it is it's a some kind of axiom or something like that um but it basically states that in order for something to be inherently scientifically true it's not whether or not it can be proven but whether it can be disproven right well it's like it's like the um the exception proves the rules right? Um, technically, it's the exception proofs the rule. The exception tests the rule. You sure. know, it has to, for something to be true, it has to be able to be tested. It has to be, you know, it's like going back, I don't want to go into the topic, but like what we said about conversation before and we, uh, beliefs we've said in an episode before, if you really believe what you believe, whether it's religion, politics or whatever, what other people think that doesn't line up with that shouldn't make you feel bad and it shouldn't make you angry 
because you should be, if you believe your thing is true, that's only a test and it can only sure. make it stronger. Sure. Good point. So, um, one of the things that I don't think currently is true is that I do, do not believe that extraterrestrial life has come to planet earth in the way that, you know, all of these ufologists and all these people say, I do believe in extraterrestrial life because it's so big out there. Um, anyways, along with that, I do still like to watch and read some things that I tend to think some are most of the times ridiculous. Like I think ancient aliens is a ridiculous show. I love watching it. It's hilarious. It is I really don't funny. agree with it, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can't disagree with you there. It's actually, comp- it's so funny. And the, and I've said this before, but the people that are on there, even though I, I, th- <laughs> I think they're goofy and they're weird or whatever, I actually like them. They actually seem like nice people. Well, for some of them too, I mean, their, 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 their sense of belief is so, so strong that you almost have to respect that level of belief. Right. Tell me you wouldn't hang out with that Giorgio Tsoukalos guy. Oh, I would totally hang out with that dude. I would hang out with him all the time. He just seems awesome. I don't have to agree with him. Who cares? No, he's you just know, a lot of fun. Not, yeah. That's, that's reality. That's real humanity, people. Is we don't hang out with people, only people we agree with. Um, anyways, another show along those lines. I don't think it's the same. I don't think it's History Channel. I think this is another channel. I don't remember. It's called Hangar One. And it's supposedly... Um, oh, the... Uh, the MUFON. What that, uh, what's that? MUFON. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's files for MUFON. I can't remember what MUFON stands for. The M is for mutual. Yeah. Mutual UFO stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what they... <laughs> <laughs> not an informational program all nope, the time. Nope, not at all. For And for all the new listeners, that's, that, that pretty much defines it. We just, it's like we a just grab kind of... bag of information. When we have it, we share it. When we don't, we just flub it. Well, you know why, though? It's because we don't... It, it's not that we don't know the stuff at some point. It's that we don't have show notes, and we find that to be more interesting. And it's random badassery. So we just yeah. grab a bunch of random shit... It's not like we're going to do one episode about Roswell and then we study Roswell for a month. We did that shit in the past with artists and stuff. It was cool, but it got old. Yeah. Anyways. I feel like I feel like every so I mean, we still have to do Edgar Allan Poe. Um, well, we can. I told you we, we can do whatever. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Stage, I'm sorry. Not Poe, Lovecraft. Uh, yeah, we never told anybody we're going to do that, by the way. Oh, never mind. <laughs> shit. Cats out the back now. <laughs> We can do whatever the hell we want in this feed now. You know what I mean? So there's yeah, no rules. Um, so anyways, long, long, long introduction. <laughs> to this. One of the Jeez. things in one of these episodes, I think it's episode three of Hangar One. I think there's only one season of the show. They're talking about uh, Roswell and uh, transistors and how um, transistors changed the world because they changed technology. Um, the ability, you know, computers and all of these things, the modern world is all built on the invention of transistors, basically. Yeah. Which is all, um, as far as I know, all true. Um, so what they claim is that, you know, there's a UFO enthusiast that claim that the, the transistor was reverse engineered from stuff that they found at the Roswell, inc- the Roswell incident. I always want to put a D at the end of that city. Roswell incident. So I'm watching this, and as the cynic that I am, I like to look things up and test them. Say, well, that's stupid because transistors probably existed before 1947. Uh, so I'm looking it up. And yes, transistors did exist before 1947. But the transistor that they're talking about, the one that did change the world, is something called the point contact transistor. 
So here's where things get weird for a, for a skeptical person. The Roswell incident was in June 14th, on June 14th, 1947. The point contact transistor was announced as an invention or discovery, whatever you want to say, in December of 1947. So from that perspective, at least, there's a little bit of leg to their story. But then you have to ask yourself, you have to say, though, let's think about this logistically. Okay, there's, let's let's assume that they, they could be right. But then you have to say, is it possible to back engineer something that's so advanced that we could not design it in six months? I think if you knew what it did, yes. Mm-hmm. And as long as and as long as the fundamental principles that govern that particular technology exist within the rules of the world that you understand, then I think it's possible. So then in this case it definitely could be possible because we did have transistors already. Which yeah, exactly. So I think I think for example, if you were if you were at the very beginnings of designing a combustion engine and you were shown a really advanced combustion engine, you would be able to do it. Now, see, this is this is the difference between us and ufologists, or so let's say between scientists and ufologists and paranormal investigators. We just found a case where it was like, oh, well, this could be. We tested it, and it made it through our test. It's possible. That's sure. all it means. Yeah. But but these other people will say, well, that means it's true. Yeah. Making it through one test means it's true. It doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's false either. We yeah, don't know. Absolutely. But it's fascinating that it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the question of it's if of it being possible is far more interesting than an absolute yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, oh, I, like, one I like that one. I actually really like that one. It's so fascinating, let's, let's, right? Let's, let's dive into that a little more. Oh, you I want to go deeper? Go deeper. No, no. As in, like, I think there's a through line here that I think is really fascinating from your perspective. Like, The one thing that I, I consistently hear from you is how much you don't like people discounting the idea that, that ancient humans, or not even ancient humans, but just past humans, couldn't possibly be as brilliant as the evidence shows. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and I think Roswell is actually kind of a good example of that, or the, the, the transistor the transistor conundrum that you're presenting, I think, is a good example of that, in the sense that I definitely believe that humans can create amazing things purely because of the human capacity for imagination. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that 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 that's where that's where we've become very small in the world. Um, and I think part of the, the, the safety and the, the, the stuff that we're talking about in, in the coddling of the American mind limits our ability to question and problem solve. And the, the best things that have come from life as we understand it or human society as we know it comes from our ability to, to question the world that we live in and then define new rules for that existence as we find better ways to do things. Yes. And what I also what also bothers me too when um maybe not so much um this doesn't specifically relate to ancient peoples but up to something like the transistor or uh, anytime they talk about back engineering something what is a little bit insulting about that number one is the assumption that it's true and less insulting than the actual what if that wasn't something that was back engineered what if that's wrong which is sure. the, the evidence does prove that there's a good chance that that, that those things are wrong right? That people did invent those things. How insulting to people 
who spent years or dedicated their lives to creating these things. And then we go, oh, we just back engineered that. And they're like, fuck you. I spent 40 years trying to create this radio, uh, radio, oh, radio point. What the hell is it called? Uh, point contractor transistor, point contactor transistor. Who knows? Mm-hmm. They could have spent their whole lives dedicated to that. You know, like sure. I have a, a brother-in-law who works for NASA and there are things that he's, um, maybe not necessarily invented himself, but he's been part of, you know, he's made parts of things that he, you know, they were completely out of his own mind that he spent months and months on that were parts of things that went out that became part of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Like a, a certain kind of satellite, I think was the story he was telling me. He's like, he's read conspiracy theories. Like, oh, that was back engineered. And he's like, no, it wasn't <laughs> because I spent like four years on that. And mm-hmm. That's 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 kind of what's what's insulting about that assumption. Assumption is it's insulting to the people who dedicate their lives to these things. Sure. Just as just as insulting as if we stole technology from somebody else and claimed it as our own. Sure. That, w- that would be just as insulting. Okay. Uh, why don't you pick one of the remaining topics? Because they're all kind of random, and you don't really know what they mean, anyways. Because <laughs> well. I just put the titles. Hmm. All right. Let me take a look here. So, so talk amongst yourself for like thirty seconds. You know what? You know what? While you, while you look at the the three, I'll go into the Apple ecosystem matters thing because um, it's technology, so it's a good transition. And then you pick one of the three that remains, okay. um, or one from your list if you want to. You you tend mm-hmm. to avoid yours for some reason. Yeah, I mean um, for now anyway. Um, so okay, go ahead. The Apple ecosystem thing. So this is a basic story about my laptop, which is a. 2017 MacBook Pro without the fancy touch bar because it was too much money for something that I probably wasn't going to use. Anyways, um, for some dumbass reason, I don't know why, even though I've done this for everything I've ever bought, I didn't get Apple Care on it. Um, I must have planned on getting it later and forgot, whatever. So I had to take it in. There's this firmware update for this, the solid state drive, whatever. That's covered. It's no big deal. So I go in. And while I'm in there, I talk to him about my fan. The fan is always blowing at full speed. And it's been doing that since the first day I got it. And I always thought it was software. So I was like, I was asking him basically, I was saying, so when you update this firmware, it's going to fix my fan problem. And he's like, what fan problem? So then I told him about it. He's like, oh, that wouldn't cause that. He's like, let me do a diagnostic. And he's like, oh, your battery is no good. So my battery has been shit since the first day I got this computer. Um, now it's getting to the point where if I unplug it and I go sit over in front of the TV and look at the laptop, it'll it shits out at like forty percent, um, literally just turns off. So I call Apple and I'm like, hey, you know, explain the situation. And so, oh well, I have to put, move you to a, a senior advisor. Okay, you know how that goes. Everybody moves you up the chain. They'll call you back tomorrow, which I I love that instead of like let me put you on hold for two hours. And maybe you can talk to this person. It's like, let's schedule and they'll call you. And so anyways, um, they called me today. I talked to this, this lady and she, was, she said two things to me. One, one, I've never, ever, ever heard in any customer service situation in my entire life. And first of all, she did the thing that I love. She wasn't talking to me like it was a script. She was talking to me like a person. Um, and she said, uh, I'm going to go check on something for you. I'll be right back. And by the way, I just want you to know, I've got your back. This is not you. 
It's not you against a big company. I'm here to make sure that we can do something for you. Whoa, weird. Super fucking cool. Uh, she didn't say make sure. I'm here to try to make sure, you know, like whatever. Um, she didn't say absolute because she couldn't say absolute. But anyways, it was just, and literally said, I'm not saying, uh, paraphrasing. She literally said, I've got your back. That's the phrase that she used. Damn, that's trippy. I don't know if they trained them to say that or whatever. Number one, she said it so naturally that I doubt it. But even if they did, that's good on you. Good on you for that training because it made me feel good. It made me feel like, uh, even though I wasn't that frustrated, um, it made me feel like, oh, I matter. I really, like, this person is, is an advocate for me. Man, I've never, I've never even heard anything resembling that. It was amazing. Um, so anyways, like she goes through this whole thing and she's really looking. So basically, um, there's things I won't say on here because somebody could get in trouble and it's not the person that I chatted with. Somebody at the Apple store. Um, anyways, I found out that there is a recall or not a recall, but a, you know, when something, there's a defective part and they'll replace it for free. You know, like uh, the keyboards were kind of fucked up on some of these and they replace it for free because sure. they realized they fucked up when they manufactured them or whatever. Well, I found out that this MacBook Pro made in 2017 without a touch bar, um, there was a recall on the battery that they were replacing the batteries. And so I went into the, the site and I typed in the serial number for this particular one. It's like, nope, not covered. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's the same machine. It's the same year. It doesn't have a touch bar. And I'm having the same problem. Why isn't it covered? So that's why I originally called, right? So she goes through it. She's like, okay, so first of all, I'll be honest with you. She's like, no matter what, we're not going to be able to get it um, because of that. She says, because it wasn't all of the MacBook Pros made in that time. You know, it, it was just the ones that came from this particular serial number range. And I'm like... Oh which means they came from a, a specific factory, right? Yeah. Um, so anyways, she's like, but I'm still going to try to find out what I can do for you. And that's when she said that I've got your back thing. Um, so she goes and she's gone for like maybe five, 10 minutes. And she comes back and she's like, okay, I'm looking at your battery diagnostics right now because the Apple store had sent it to him. She's like, yeah. She says it shows that you only have 170 cycles. She's like, that's not a lot. I'm like, nope. That's not a lot. Actually, it seems like really small for two years of use. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what a battery cycle is, it's every time that you fully charge the, the, the laptop or the battery. Anyways, so she ends up um, asking me questions. And then she asked me another question that no one's ever asked me before. And she said, do you own any other Apple products? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. I said, I have this MacBook Pro. I actually still have my MacBook Air. I have an iPad. I have an old iPad mini. I have the original iPad. I've had probably 12 iPhones. I have one right now. I have AirPods. I have the Apple Pencil. I have the iPad Pro. <laughs> I have the smart cover for the iPad Pro. I have Apple TV and I have the HomePod. I'm all in. Like I literally own almost every product they make, right? <laughs> she goes, <Jeez>. okay. <laughs> And she comes back and she leaves again. She comes back. She goes, okay, so we're going to fix this for you. And it's going to be covered. She said, because you're a longtime customer. And that's why I put Apple's, the ecosystem matters. There's an aspect of the ecosystem that we never thought about because we never experienced it. 
we've said this before for anybody that doesn't know this, we talk about the importance of the ecosystem of apps, uh, devices working together. Um, that having those devices, having other things by the company is what allowed me to get this one fixed. Because somebody out there was smart enough to go, is it worth $200 to retain this customer? That's given us probably close to $20,000. Jeez. And it's probably going to continue to do and spend on these devices in the future. You know, I didn't even mention, you know, it's like I pay for Apple Music. I pay for Apple News Plus. I pay for extra storage. You know, like all those other things I'm giving the money for too. Somebody was smart enough to figure that out. And I thought that was really cool because most companies out there, most big companies would say, I don't care. These are the rules. And she made sure to stress, you know, this is a one-time exception. But that's all I need. I need a one-time exception. Number one, I usually buy Apple Care. Yeah, no kidding. Huh. It's, it's not like I could have broke the battery. You know, I can't even get to the fucking thing. <laughs> well, that's a very that's a very weirdly gratitude-laden moment for a giant company. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, that's crazy. So, Apple, your senior advisors at your customer support, especially Jackie. That was her name, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. You guys are you guys are awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But fix your hold music. It fucking sucks. Yeah, and for a company that that has such a long history in music ecosystems, it's very strange that they don't have better old music. <laughs> well, it's it's not even like the the songs that they're playing. It's that it literally cuts out. It's like <laughs> sounds like an alien coming out of your stomach. I literally have no idea what you just did right now. I just spit all over my new microphone. Solid, nice work. Yeah. I'm also running out of liquid. Um, what topic did you pick? I'm very curious about this cursive T's, Q's, and I, or T's, uh, I's, and X's thing. What the hell are you talking about? Okay, this is a short one. I, I, I was going to actually go a little bit longer because I am curious about the benefits of handwriting. But um, suffice to say that uh, I've been slowly trying to get myself back into doing all of my notes in cursive instead of printing. Um, that said... I started thinking about how weird it is. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about how in reality, cursive writing is easier than printing because, you know, it's this flow of the pen, right? You know, all the letters connect. Boom, boom. You can just rip through that. And that's somewhat true, except when you have I's, T's, and X's in the word. So you put a, a really long word that has like two T's and an I or three I's and an X. When you get to the end of that line that you've written, you know, that swirly line of letters connected, you have to go back and look at that word and go, well, which of these shapes is unfinished? Oh, yeah, this one's an X. Oh, that's right. This is an I. This is an I. Oh, this is a T. And I just, I just thought that it had been so long since I'd like really done cursive. I thought that was a very interesting thing is that like there is a weird sense when you're writing cursive words that while you're writing the word, you have to remember the word that you're writing. Because when you go back at the end of the word, you got to fix it, right? You got to make sure that it's, it's, it's complete. But all your I's are dotted, all your T's are crossed, all your X's are divorced. I wonder if that's why that, 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 that cliche exists or idiom or whatever, axiom, whatever you want to call it, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's. It must. 
It must because because, you, because it's about me. It's about it, the devils in the details, right? Not to use a cliche to find a cliche, but well, yeah, it's it's remembered know. across your T's and dot your eyes. It's like because otherwise your words don't make any sense. You can't sure. fucking read it, right? You know the word utility. It doesn't look like the word utility if you don't dot the I's and the T. It just looks like a bunch of upward strokes with an S at the end. Oh, no, no, sorry, I said utility with a Y at the end. Sure. If it was utilities, you'd have more eyes. But anyways, you get my point. <laughs> so that's what that one was about. Just yes, this, I get your point. <laughs> the strange power of, of of cursive handwriting. And then I was going to go further and find out what other benefits there are to cursive and handwriting because I know there are some. Um, I know that it stimulates um, both hemispheres of the brain at the same time, the analytical and the creative, because yeah, you have that's to. A thing. Yeah, you have to create the shape. And then you're also, you know, spelling and yeah, remembering sure. your T's and your I's and your X's. Yeah, that's so random, dude. Okay, so let's let's go into CRISPR for a minute. Um, this is uh, I have a lot of notes on this, but it shouldn't be long. But this is fascinating. We've talked about CRISPR before, I think. But I was reading the April 2019 issue of Wired, and CRISPR is a a big feature in that issue. There's several articles about CRISPR. For people who don't know what CRISPR is, CRISPR is, I'm sorry, i probably not the best person to explain this, but CRISPR is a way to splice genes. Um, and it's a way to splice genes that's just completely um, beyond anything that they ever imagined being able to do before. Um, it's literally like being able to go into like Logic Pro and cut out parts of, you know, like this. Cut out a word that I say or whatever and, you know, put in something else. It's comparative to that. So, after reading these couple articles, I also remembered the episode where I first heard about CRISPR of Radiolab, which is called Update CRISPR, if you guys want to listen to it. Um, the first 80% is a re-airing of an old show from 2015 called Antidotes Part 1 CRISPR. And then, since it had been two years since that episode, they go about 20 minutes deeper. And that I suggest listening to Update CRISPR because that 20 minutes deeper is kind of the important shit for me at least. So anyways, um, people really like the idea of CRISPR. CRISPR is exciting. You know, if you don't understand uh, uh, maybe or you haven't thought about the benefits of splicing genes, you could, for example, we talk a lot about avian flu and uh, pig flu, uh, swine flu, sorry, swine flu and their dangers. Do, do, we, do we talk a lot about those things? <laughs> Not we. I mean the world. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, the world. Um because they're dangerous and they cross over to humans and they kill humans in huge swaths, right? Well, it's possible using CRISPR to make chickens and pigs um, resistant to influenza. You just go in and take out that part of that gene. By the way, these are things you can do to animals that are already alive. That's the thing about CRISPR. This isn't stuff you do to embryos. Oh, you can do it to embryos. But you can do this to things that are already alive and change their genetic code as they stand, which is kind of incredible. That's horrifying. Um, so you could go in and you could, you know, okay, no more swine flu, no more, no more pig flu because we're going to, we'll, we'll put it into these guys. And then after a couple of generations, that won't be around because there will be no uh, animals that can carry it. Except yeah, for what's, but what's the cost? Right. That's kind of where I go with this. But another example, I want to go into some of the positive things. How about mosquitoes that are unable to carry malaria? That seems like a really good thing, right? Um, how about in humans, right? Um, cure hemophilia. 
no one ever has hemophilia um, because there's a, there's a defective gene that causes hemophilia. Or how about this? You could cure cancer with CRISPR because you can uh, inject a gene that creates a protein and that protein is made to do nothing but attack, attack cancer cells. You could, for example, make people HIV resistant. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a Chinese researcher, I think it was 2015, who took two human embryos and made them HIV resistant using CRISPR. Huh. I think the embryos the embryos were not allowed to be born, but he crossed the line. By the way, no one gave him permission because there's I mean there's no laws saying that people can't do this, but it's kind of accepted in the scientific community that it's not we're not ready to do it on humans yet. And he just kind of leaped over that. Um so all you can understand all these positive possibilities, right? It's pretty easy to see that. And when you when you update, um, when you update like a, a a living pig or whatever, right? He has that he or she has that gene. They're going to pass that gene on, but it's not necessarily a dominant gene, right? So it will die out eventually. So it's it's it doesn't uh, change the species forever. But then this is part of that update episode. This other guy figured out he's like, hmm, what if you could use CRISPR to install CRISPR? So basically he said, uh, so what if you take a mosquito, we'll use the mosquitoes, and you inject a gene or you remove the part of the gene that allows them to carry malaria. And along with that, you also inject basically what is like a self-installer for CRISPR. So when that mosquito goes and breeds, it passes on that malaria resistance, but it also passes on that CRISPR installer. So then that CRISPR installer installs itself into their genetic code and then that passes on to the next one and the next one. So eventually every mosquito on the planet will be malaria resistant forever because CRISPR will be pre-installed. Man, we don't know enough to actually use that. And that's where the repercussions thing comes in because we've talked about, uh, you and I have talked before about um, the butterfly effect. Um, what if that mosquito, what if one of the side effects of that mosquito becoming malaria resistant is that it's now poisonous to frogs? So now every frog that eats a mosquito on the planet dies. And if all the frogs die, how does that change the ecosystem? Well, let's, let's extrapolate from the other side of that too, right? Like, I mean, we, we occasionally talk about, about how humanity in its current cultural state, current cultural and technological state is essentially destroying natural selection as we know it and how natural selection over its its millennia um eons uh, of of helping to to build the creatures that we know and love today including humans um is is basically the reason why it works is because of genetic diversity and the, the, basically us being able to rewrite our genetic code to become a very narrow and defined genetic um, set of rules means that gen- genetic diversity as we understand it fundamentally dies. Which is why people are not supposed to screw their cousins or their siblings. Yeah, it's, yeah we, it's built into our DNA that that produces crazy-ass kids that, that, that have serious problems. Right. Um, so, so we're essentially... England had a problem with that. Well, we're bypassing nature yet again. 
And I'm, I'm already terrified enough that we're, we're destroying genetic diversity as we understand it throughout the course of, 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 of his, the historic, the, our historical understanding of evolution. And this is just yet another more clearly defined way in which we're tampering with that. And I'm not even necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. Like if we can cure cancer, that's great. You know what I mean? But when we start specifically authoring the genes of kids to become a certain way, like we're, if we're controlling behaviors or if we're de- defining what you're talking about, for example, like changing the way our physiological and, 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 and anatomical world works um, through science and, and through specific engineering, like at what point are we going to run into unintended consequences that may destroy our species or dis- destroy entire ecosystems that will affect the entire planet? Right. Well, imagine a dictator. A dictator like what's used the most famous dictator of all time, Adolf Hitler. You're Adolf Hitler and you have this tool. You can inject docility into everyone. So now they no longer have the desire, the will, or the ability to fight you. Jeez. How about that? Or how about this? Say you're just... um, Maybe you're Hitler, but you're not in charge of a country. Maybe you're just a crazy racist. Maybe you're not even Hitler. Maybe you're somebody who hates black people. What if you just decide, "Mm, I'm going to take this CRISPR thing and make sure that every black person only has a white child. You could kill off an entire race. You can create genocide with this thing. Yeah, or or if you make it so that all black people have a a genetic predisposition for being uh, much more affected by the flu, like influenza will kill black people. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, milk uh, poisons uh, Asian people. Like instead of getting sick, they die. You know, they already have like a, a, a lactose intolerance thing. Now they're all dead. So you can clear it. You could literally just, like you were saying, continue to contain things. And this isn't like a government conspiracy thing. All it takes is one scientist who knows how to use CRISPR and one crazy fucking brain because it's something that you can inject into people that are already alive. Jeez. But now you get into also, like you were saying, like, you know, like uh, narrowing things down, like designer babies. Well, nobody wants, you know, uh, nobody wants a child that has uh, red hair. Let's get rid of all those redheads, which would make me cry. But anyways, let's get rid of all those redheads um, because nobody wants them. You know, like we go through trends in society, right? Well, what if your babies are subject to trends? And it's like, well, blondes aren't popular this year. Well, you're breeding out blonde. Well, guess what? Now we'll never have blondes. Um, And then maybe, you know, like years later, it's like, sure wish we had those blondes around. It's and, And that's not even getting into the idea of, um, doing these things to babies, there's no consent, right? This is an unborn life. So you're doing something to an unborn life without consent. Jeez. It's very scary. It's, that's the problem with some technologies, right? The benefits and the negatives are massive, but usually they're equal. You know, I don't know if you know this, but like trees, see a big tree, usually the roots are the same size as the tree that you see if the tree hasn't been trimmed on the top. Trees are are equal above ground as they are below. They're like mirror images of each other in size. Usually we trim our trees up top, but you get the point. Yeah. That 
I can't remember why I said that. <laughs> uh, I felt like you had a good point there. You had some kind of good point there. Um, oh, yeah. that's that's obnoxious. I was waiting for the I was waiting for the answer to that one. Trees, same top, bottom stuff. Don't know. That's a lost, lost. What were we talking about? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about CRISPR and. Man, where? Oh, I have no idea. I have. You had such a. You had a. You that was long winded. So it started in a very defined place, and I don't know where you were going with that. Getting rid of redheads, getting rid of, you know, um, specifically engineering things in order to kill people off the face of this planet. Oh, that's what it was. So the tree, just like the tree, is equal above ground. It is it is below ground. The benefits. The bigger the benefit of of any scientific uh, discovery or technology, we'll say. Usually the negatives are an exact mirror. That's true. So we could cure cancer. That's amazing. We could also destroy the human race. That's not so amazing. They're equal. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's why maybe giant leaps aren't always the best thing. Maybe it's better to stick with small leaps and move forward. With Unfortunately, that's the giant leaps are typically what end up happening. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that, 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 that is the defines the Fermi paradox too, right? Is that there are certain barriers um, and one of which is technological advancement past a certain point, um, certain barriers that lead to um, humanity destroying itself. Um, and one of those is discovering science past a certain point that, that you know, as, as a species, we've typically, we typically leap. Um, we, don't, we don't slowly trod into things. And so at some point, we're going to discover something that basically annihilates the planet. Yeah, good chance. Hopefully by then we're more places than just here. Um, yeah, hopefully. Let's go, let's go to back to the shared stuff thing. I finally watched a movie you talked about years ago, Faces and Places, Visage Village. You remember huh. the movie? Barely. <laughs> I can't remember the photographer's name. It's it's the the older lady photographer traveling with the young guy who goes by the name Jr. They travel through France with this the van that's shaped like a camera. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Wow, holy crap! Took you long enough. Well, it popped up on my Apple TV as oh you might like this movie, and I'm like oh shit, then Lamb talked about that. Boom, play. Um, fantastic, beautiful little film. Beautiful little yeah, film. Absolutely, it's really good. Um, what I enjoy about it is there's no, I mean, it, it's mildly documentary. Um, usually when you say documentary, people think of it like news or something like that. You know, like it's, it's, it's like some sort of propaganda piece or something. But sure. this is just following them around. But what I, it's just, it's really meandering. And I just liked, and I think that's, that's something that's very European. Um, that sometimes they just let films be. You know, like, oh, what's the structure of this? It doesn't have one. We just wanted yeah. to make this movie, and this is how it went. Yeah, I really, I really dig the loose narrative. There's almost no narrative to that. To that, well, there is, you know, kind yeah. of. Um, yeah, but she's I, losing I her vision. Yeah, I definitely like how free it feels. What's What's fascinating about it too is they blur a lot of lines. Like it's it's very realistic, and then also at times it's it's completely fake. You yeah, know, like. You know, like they're reading scripted voiceovers, and but then like the scenes with people are real, and it's 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 like it's nice how they're just kind of playing with the form, and they're not yeah. trying to be clever, they're just kind of having fun. And I uh, imagination, unencumbered imagination, man. I feel like so much of that is missing from the world these days. 
And by the way, what a weird ending too. Like, I wonder if that was real. Like the thing where um, they go to meet um, Godard and he just doesn't meet them. And he leaves that like note that she thinks is really mean that makes her cry. I kind of think that is real. Yeah, it might. It seemed her tears definitely seemed real. And she's not an actress by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I wonder, I I would love to, I don't know, I I, I want to research that now. I haven't thought about that movie in, God, four years, basically since we started talking about it. Can you imagine that was that long ago? Yeah. It gives me a weird sense yeah, it gives me a weird sense of perspective about about our, our the podcast and the journey, like just the things that are different in our lives now as compared to where they were then. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this one happened on accident. But as, as I'm going through and I'm doing notes on these old episodes, I'm going through the show notes and I'm like, I should probably go check out some of this stuff. You know, like anything that you talked about that I never checked out. I'm like, well, that'd be kind of fun to check that out now. Yeah, I feel like we're both in that space too. Like I'm starting to actually read the books you recommend. Yeah, they're fascinating, right? Yeah. I, although I will say, though, that there's a part of me, like I slowed down on, because I, I pretty much read the first couple of chapters of The Coddling of the American Mind in one afternoon. And then I had to slow down. Um, yeah. And the reason why is just because just from where I am psychologically, it it, it was kind of damaging. <laughs> yeah, like that Zuboff book. I haven't touched it for two weeks because I'm like, whoa, okay, I got it. Because I know like we went through this whole thing about Google in the first third. I'm pretty sure the second third is going to be Facebook. So I'm just not looking forward to learning all that shit that when I was still on there, all the information I gave them and what they were doing with it. They're still doing with everything. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about pets for a second. This is kind of a story. So um, little man here, little latte. uh, He kind of, he was sitting over here the other night and he's like doing his normal thing. He's got, so I've got my chair and I sit in my chair and uh, I think I might've been moving episodes during this and he's down by his little, um, he has a little bed. He sleeps in my bed with me, but he has his own little bed too. It's usually just full of his toys. So he's down there playing with his toys and I kind of hear this noise and I look over and I'm like, Oh, he's going to puke. Like he's doing that chokey thing. Right. Yep. And so I go over and I, you know, I look at him and he's still doing it. So then I pick him up and like, he's not puking. Usually it doesn't take long. You know, dog's going to puke. It usually happens within 30 seconds. So I realize I'm like, oh, he's not puking. He's choking. He's, he's oh. choking. Oh no. It's like, he's not trying to get something up. He's trying to get something down. Um, so like in my head, obviously I have no idea. In my head, I'm imagining he swallowed something square, you know, and it's like, just you know, a dog wants something in his stomach, just get it down. So he, I pick him up and you know, I'm freaking out a little bit and uh, I'm holding him and I'm going, okay, okay. I'm looking at him and I'm like, I'm looking him in the eyes. I got him a little bit freaked out at first. So I had to calm down because I got worked up and then he started to get worked up. Like, okay. So I calm down and I'm holding him and I'm like, okay, it's about been about 10 minutes. I'm like, fuck. Okay, what am I going to have to do? Am I going to take him to the, you know, it's late at night. Am I going to have to take him to the emergency? What am I going to do? And finally, after about 20 minutes, he stops doing it. I'm like, okay, well, if he was swallowing something, now it's in his stomach. Yep. So I take him to the vet. I'm talking to the vet. And um, anyways, we'll talk about the vet after. But the reason I brought it up, the reason I put it in here, <clears throat> is I understood something for the first time. Um, 
and it seems grand that I'm going to say I understand parenthood, but I understand a small part of parenthood now in a way that I didn't before in the sense that um, there was a knot in my stomach and a sickness and a panic in me that I've only ever felt about myself. Mm. That's only come from hypochondria and anxiety about myself. I've never had to feel that for another living thing. Not that I don't care for or I'm compassionate, but I've never been in the responsible position for another living thing that was huh. what I thought in distress. Interesting. And it was a very strange experience because I understood things. Obviously, I don't understand it to the scale that a, that a parent would with a child. But I understood for the first time things that people would say that seemed like cliches, you know, like that feeling of helplessness. Yes, it's really powerful because you know that you are responsible for this life. But you also know what's happening right now is not something that I can do anything about. I'm not a surgeon. I am not a vet. I am not many things that could fix this situation. It was a very profound experience. Luckily, what? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the, I mean, what was the feeling of helplessness like? Like, what what did that physically conjure in you? It's it's really hard to put into words. I don't even know that I could. Um, obviously, like my stomach acid just shot through the roof, but then just nausea and just churning, and you can't. It's it's exactly like hypochondria, except it's not about yourself. Mm. You're freaking out, but you're freaking out for this living creature. And luckily, like I went to the vet, the vet thinks it was probably just acid reflux. She's like, he would probably have been joking, like coughing and stuff if it was something he was swallowing. Um, so that's good. And then I had them do blood work just in case everything's good. So anyways, he's on the bed snoozing right now. He's fine. Well, did you guys ever, did you discover what it actually was though? No. No, she seems to think it was acid reflux, so I'm going with that. Okay. His, for anybody who want to know, his poop has been very normal. <laughs> okay, well. I mean, parent, we'd, we'd, be, we'd, be re- we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about shit at least once on the show. Yeah, and part of being a parent, whether it's a dog parent or a child parent, is cleaning up poop and having to look at it. <laughs> because you have to look at it to make sure everything's good. Hmm. So yeah, that was a little bit of a, a scary experience, but gave me a very interesting perspective. And then there's the writer in me that goes, hmm, now if I ever have to write a parent, I understand something that I couldn't have I couldn't have written a parent as well as I could now. Did I ever tell you about Sammy? I don't think so. Well, okay. So the two experiences here. First one is having to first of all euthanize my childhood dog. Um his name was Tiny, and his quality of life was getting pretty horrible. Like he had liver problems, he couldn't see, could barely hear, and was just living in kind of excruciating pain. And so I had to put him down. And the experience that I I had with that one was pretty rough. Um, like you know, my mom couldn't even be like she she couldn't even say goodbye to him. Um, and it was it was you know I had to I had to be the one that like held him when they put him under. Um, but there was this other dog that, um, in my, in in one of my other relationships, this dog, uh, we found at a shelter, his name was Sammy. 
And he was this, this adorable little terrier, just the sweetest dog, um, just wanted to be loved and was kind to everybody and kind to all the other dogs. And it was just this wonderful dog. And, you know, one of those situations like yours where like the moment you meet the dog, you immediately know, um, like the dog just came right to me and, and, and all that cliche sappy stuff. And the horrible thing is that, so the first couple of days, you know, he was kind of slowly growing into his own, um, kind of getting familiar with the house. And then on the, I think the fifth day it was, he started to convulse at random um, and he started to have these seizures and we kept bringing him back and forth to um, the vet and the vet ultimately to make a long story short the the reason why he experienced the seizures was because he was a certain um, level of happy um, and all the physical conditions that led him to his happiness uh, made him convulse and and have these really horrible seizures um, and so we had to put him down. And that was the most horrible experience, both to realize that the only reason why he would have these convulsions was, and they didn't know this at the pound or at the animal shelter, I'm sorry, because he was never happy at the animal shelter. Right. And so I had to bring him back and have him, you know, put down because his happiness led him to feeling to having these like life-threatening seizures every time like he would and as he got happier and happier they happened more frequently so you know the first couple of days he didn't experience any and then he would experience like one a day and then two a day and then it got up to the point where it's like seven or eight of them a day it was only because he was really really happy man it bums me out even talking about it right now um but you know even i i had to bring him back um to the animal shelter where they were going to euthanize him because his quality of life just wasn't great. And that was the hardest drive. Like I, I took him to the park. Like I, I, I'd never experienced that sense of, 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 of loss for, for a creature. Um, like, man, I've had that a little bit for humans, but I mean, this one was profound because I had to make the choice, you know, and I wanted to give that dog the best day that I could give him before, before I brought him back, you know? Um, I'm not sure where the hell I was going with that other than um, I had probably the most human experience I'd ever had, like a, a true feeling of just absolute empathy and, and loss. Um, and it wasn't a human that I felt it for. It was a dog. Yeah, I think that people tend to downplay um, things like that because like, oh, it wasn't a human. It was a dog. It's not less important. It's just different and it's different in the ways like you said where it's like this, this a dog can't talk for itself a dog sure. can't make choices for itself so it that's why it, in a way it's analogous to a baby because it's like you're making choices for this life that you are responsible for because it cannot be responsible for itself mm-hmm. and that is it's it's a profound experience and i understand why having that responsibility for years, you know, for 18 years or more, why, why that's life-changing in a way that I didn't understand before. I understood intellectually, but now I understand on an emotional level and in ways that I, I have yet to begin to even digest. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyways, now that we bummed all of you out. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was pretty deep. That sucks. Um, Sorry. <laughs> let's let's um, make a fart joke. No, um, 
let's let's do our challenges for uh, for anybody who doesn't know. We like we you heard it in the middle. We like to give ourselves challenges every week. We kind of did it just kind of as a gimmick at first, but then we actually started giving ourselves challenges that were kind of especially for you, Lamb, that you were finding beneficial. Well, I'm also trying to get braver with them as well. Um, so, I mean, every like the, the date one was a tough one um, because, you know, I had I had trial runs of that. Like I had lunch with an old friend that was female as well um, that, you know, I hadn't talked to in a long time. And then I, I went to the movies with one of my female friends and I went on a hike with one of my female friends, all kind of like gearing myself up for even going on a date. Um, so I, I basically want to keep doing that. And that's part of the reason why I kind of come up with these things spontaneously because I try in the moment to think of what would terrify me the most and then just go and do it. <laughs> so what's it this week? I'm not sure. You start with this one. I'm kind of thinking through mine now. Uh, I'm not trying to define my define <laughs> to challenge myself uh, in, in a frightening way. I think uh, I had this thought while I was walking. Um, I think I would like to take my camera this is a challenge you gave yourself, but I'm not going to do five pictures a day. I think I want to do a week where I'd find at least one picture of, of something with the camera every day. And um, I'm going to put up a gallery on, on the Holy Fool website. And then maybe uh, I used to love going for photo walks and just taking a camera and walking. And this, this will be particularly challenging for me because I've never had to take a picture with a live animal on a leash pulling on me while I'm trying to take a, trying to stay still enough to take a photo. (laughs) Interesting. So that's my challenge this week. Photo challenge. Um, I'm going to figure out one horrible vice that I have in my life and quit it completely cold turkey for the rest of my life. Sweet. Oh, you know what? Yeah. Real quick. Let's talk about something real quick. uh, What's the status of the song? Oh, it's done. Um, it's recorded. Um, I officially got my BMI certification. I didn't know that process took so damn long. Um, so, you know, basically, um, when you write any kind of music for publication, you have to prove that it's yours somehow. And right. usually that's done through BMI or ASCAP. Um, I've heard so many horrible things about ASCAP that I went with BMI. Uh, but because BMI is kind of more of a, a uh, community-based open source kind of thing, it's not as corporate, it takes a hell of a lot longer. Um, so I finally just got my BMI cert, uh, earlier this week. And now I have to sign up for a TuneCore account and figure out all that stuff. But the recordings, the hard stuff's done. Now it's just the minutia. Um, so it's kind of like figuring out what you did with podcasting, for example, where like there's all these little bullshitty things that you have to do in order to just make it live. So now I'm in that process. Um, and I should, it should be available for download by or I'm sorry, for listening to you by probably the middle of next week should be out there. So by the next episode. Yep. Not part of the challenge. I just want to do that anyway. Uh, my challenge will be to remove a vice permanently from my life forever. And um, speaking of vices that you got rid of, or not got rid of, but you dealt with, what's um, what's your status on social media and phone? Let's just follow up on all that stuff. Um, I'm still using my phone probably three or four times more than I need to. And it's really annoying. Um, I want to try to... Right now, I think I'm at like an hour and 40 minutes a day, um, which is too damn long. Uh, but I mean, I, a lot of that's because I'm answering like work emails and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's next on the list of removal things for me. Um, 
social media itself, um, I dip probably, I mean, I, I imagine half of that time is spent on Instagram. Um, but it's because I, I, I'm on my computer. So I don't know if that counts. Does, are we counting spe- specifically just, just mobile devices for social media or just in general? Uh, it's up to you. What do you want to count? For me, they all count, but I don't have any of them. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, I still spend more time on... I, I spend literally zero time on Facebook and I don't miss it at all. Um, so, so Twitter and Facebook are completely out of my life now. I haven't looked at a Twitter feed in three weeks, basically since we started the challenge. And I only looked at Facebook twice for work-related things and just didn't... I haven't, I haven't opened Facebook on a browser... Um, and it's completely off my phone and has been for the last um, three weeks, and I don't miss it at all. Um, the only one that I dip into now is Instagram, and I still probably do that more than I probably should. <laughs> Excuse me. I uh, I think my screen time is down to 25 minutes average a day on my phone. Um, I'm yeah. so impressed by that. I'm barely touching it. But um, what I did do today is I did put on my Apple Watch for the first time in like three weeks. Oh, shit. Why? Um, because there are certain things that I do need to... Um, that it's actually beneficial for me. Um, like, for example, that call with Apple today was a scheduled call. And I put it in my calendar. But because I didn't... I don't, I don't know where my phone is most of the time. I didn't get the buzz for the notification to be ready to answer the phone. So they called me and I didn't answer. <laughs> so then they called me back 10 minutes later, luckily. Um, so if I had had the watch on, I would have got that notification. And I don't get a shitload of text messages like you do. So like I get like six text messages a day. So it's not really a big deal for me to get. <laughs> I get I get six text messages from you a day. <laughs> yeah, that's that's usually because I'm sitting in front of something and I go, no, no, I don't I don't text anybody else really. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and then yeah, just basics uh, notifications so that I I think I can use the watch in a way now where um, it allows me to use the phone even less. Interesting, because it 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 can tell me things, but I don't need to go over to the device. And that was the problem I was finding is I was actually um, using the phone more in ways that I didn't want to. Like I had to go over to the phone. Um, like when I get the notification like eight minutes ago when I got the notification to take my, my medicine. I have to go find my phone and mark off that I took the medicine because that's how I track it, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. But if it's on my watch, I just go, it's 10 o'clock, I put it in my mouth and I hit it on the watch, done. I don't, I don't care where my phone is. So it was driving, not using the watch was actually driving me to the phone more. Uh, I gotcha. So this is the way way to get it out. Maybe I can get down to 15 minutes a day. Who knows? Huh. Yeah. So that's my, that's my, my current plan. So good thing I didn't sell it. And I don't need to wear it every day, you know, but when I, you know, like if I want a day off, maybe I won't wear a watch at all, but I have that, you know, $40 watch I bought. I just put that on, on the day off. Well, do you think it's, it's to the point where, Hmm. I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Do you think you've gotten to the point now, um, if we're going back to digital minimalism, where you've figured out a smart way to use the technology that doesn't encumber on your life? Mm, I hadn't thought about it like that. But yeah, I guess I went through a digital detox with with the watch. Mm -hmm. And now I understand the utility of it and not the novelty of it. 
Yeah, sure. So do you think you're at a place where you can comfortably reintroduce it in a consistent way that will not be damaging to your life? I think so. I'm going to try it. We'll find out. I guess that's part of the challenge too. You know, take a photo every day and see how it goes with the Apple Watch. Sure. Um, Hmm. Fascinating. What was your challenge again? I'm typing it in. Uh, My challenge was to take one vice out of my life completely. Oh, yeah. Remove one vice. Okay. Well, everybody, um, most of you listening right now have never heard this show before or have only heard probably the last episode, which hopefully if you're listening to this, that means you're going to stick around. But anyways, uh, you're going to continue to hear this every week, Lamb and I. You're also going to continue to hear the stuff that I was doing in this feed before. This is not anything. Nothing has been removed. Everything has just been added together. Just makes more sense. Everything is about conversations. I talk to Lamb all the time because he's my favorite person to talk to. And then (laughs) when I have have the opportunity to talk to other people, I'm going to talk to them. And that's going to be in here too. And any other crazy shit that we come up with, you know, we've talked years about doing audio documentaries and stuff like that. If we ever get around to doing that, I'm going to drop those in here too. But if you like this, please subscribe. If you're listening on Overcast, hit that stars, you know, because uh, you could rank us. I moved us from arts into education. Uh, We are not an informational podcast, but we do try to talk about the stuff we're reading and the stuff that we're learning. Um, We might not teach you anything, but we're learning. so well, I would well, like to see we're, us right. We're, we're definitely not going to teach you anything. <laughs> we might teach you patience. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, so I would like to rank. Uh, so if you want to be really awesome, if you're a friend, if you're a friend that's listening to this right now and you listen in Overcast, like this episode and go back and like every single episode, all 102. Let's rank high. Let's get above Tony Robbins. Let's get above The Art of Charm. Let's get above Jordan Harbinger. Let's get above who else is in that entertainment category? Hello, Internet. Let's rank above all those guys. Why? Because it's fun. And I want to see us in there because that's how we find new people. And last thing that I'm going to, since I have your attention, please share the show with people. Tell people about this show, about this channel, about what we are now calling, again, Random Badassery. Because if you like it, tell somebody else. That's all we ask. I'm not even going to tell you to go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I'll do that next week. Weird. Feels like coming home now that it's random badassery again. Yeah, it's weird. It's strange. Um, but it's also amazing because now it, it, it makes sense that it, it came full circle. Yeah, agreed. All right. Bye, babies. Bye. Bye. <laughs>